I got my first bike when I was eight years old. And, and when I do my chores, my mother would let me ride my bike uh, up the gravel road. And I got a dime for my chores and I would buy a Coke. And to me, Coke meant freedom. Get away from my parents and my environment and, uh, and make my own decisions. Welcome to the Total Refresh Podcast from Coca-Cola North America. I'm your host, Katherine Cherry. And I'm Jamal Booker. Consumer beverage needs are changing, and Coke is shifting its core business strategy in order to meet those needs. As our company responds to these demands and expands our beverage offerings, we want to know what these changes mean for our business. And importantly, what does this new strategy mean for Coca-Cola North America employees? Coca-Cola isn't the only company going through these changes, and we're not the only employee base with these questions. So, on season one of Total Refresh, we're doing something we've never done before. We're inviting people everywhere to listen in as we get real with our leaders. And are you nervous about this being available to the public? Well, I am more thoughtful about what I'm saying, let me tell you that. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm not nervous. I think it's actually kind of a cool thing to let people see kind of behind the curtain and uh, we're all just people and it's good to get to know each other a little bit better. Today is a big day. It's the last episode of our first season. So we're sitting down with the president of Coca-Cola North America, Jim Dinkins. Before leading Coca-Cola North America, Jim led the Minute Maid business, and he ran retail for all of Coke North America. I get uncomfortable when people talk about stuff about me. Mm -hmm. And the reason I get uncomfortable about it is my job is different, but it's not more important than anybody else's. However, I am also not naive enough to know that, you know, I am in a position that does have the ability to have a big impact. Having said that, you know, what I would want people to look back and say is that, the group of people that were running the business during this time had a vision of looking far enough ahead where they anticipated the changes and put us in the best position to win such that we're ready to take it to the next level. A lot of people count on Jim, and he has to understand a little bit about everything and everyone. I really want to know how Jim's developed the confidence needed to make that final say every day. Yeah, and a big part of his focus is on mentoring and empowering other leaders and employees to take the extra initiative. I want to understand more about his leadership style and his approach to training and mentorship. One, Coke has never done anything like this before, so we're being iterative. We're learning as we go. Mm -hmm. It's a pilot. Two, we are very curious people, so we've been empowered to ask tough questions. So we are really opening up um, the curtain of what's going on and what's top of mind for employees at Coca-Cola. Okay. And in the sense of being inclusive, we're going to lean into our culture. We want to understand what we're doing to help improve our culture at Coke North America. First, I am curious about why you think it's valuable for us to have these kind of conversations for employees. Yeah, I think it's important because we're all just people. And I think in the business that we're in and the culture that we want to have and create in the one I think we actually have is that it's really a 
person-to-person business, not only just literally with consumers to consumers and customers to customers, but we're just people. Conscious, unconscious bias is improved with just knowing people better, how people act and think. And I think it's a great way just to get to know the leaders of Coke North America a little bit better. I hear that you're a native Atlantan. Yes. Uh, well documented that you're a son of a preacher and a teacher as well. That's true. Kind of curious to know, did you ever have like a rebellious streak, right, being the son of a preacher? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't say I had a rebellious streak. I would just say that like most young people, I was uh, curious about certain things. and I, But I was always the kind of person that tried to do know the difference between right and wrong. I would say that I was mischievous, like a lot of young, young teenage boys were, but uh, but more just a normal kid. You know, well, the thing that really made it comfortable for me is my father, even though he was a minister, you know, it was his job. And although we had a strong faith-based family, he was always very practical and very realistic about how he did things. So I, it just kind of felt like it was his job and how we were, and I didn't feel like I really needed to rebel, to be honest with you. And being from Atlanta, the home of Coke, just curious, do you have any Coke stories or Coke memories growing up? You know, it's interesting you do. So I'm actually from uh, the Atlanta metro area, Uh I would say. From five years old to 13 years old, my father took a little bit of uh, an off-the-track move and worked for the Atlanta Union Mission and ran a place called the Potter's House. Hmm. A lot of people that go to UGA would know the Potter's House from it's a thrift store that people would find a bunch of cool stuff in, but it was actually a home, uh, it was actually a rehabilitation center for people with alcoholism and then a a place for elderly men. So I said all that to say we lived on a 180-acre farm about halfway between Jefferson, Georgia and Athens, Georgia. And there was a little a little store at the end of our road, which probably was a, maybe a mile long out into the country uh, off the road. And it was called the Redstone Grocery Store. And it had the open top cooler with ice t- cold Cokes in them. And they were a dime back wow. in those days. And I can remember that when I, I got my first bike when I was eight years old. And, and when I do my chores, my mother would let me ride my bike up the gravel road, and I got a dime for my chores, and I would buy a Coke. And to me, Coke meant freedom Mm. because I had the opportunity to get on my bike and do something myself and get away from my parents and my environment and, uh, and make my own decisions. So that's kind of one of my favorite Coke memories. Let's fast forward. Okay. You're in college. Mm-hmm. You're gearing up for graduation day. Mm-hmm. What was on your mind? Walk us through that. It's a, a time of big change. You're making a leap from an academic environment that's very theoretical and taking those first steps into the real world. Yeah. What was going through your mind at that time? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a very forward-looking person, and I've always been very excited and optimistic about what was next. And I think... The reason for that is I did move around three times between five years old and going off to college. So there was oftentimes I was a new person at the school, new person in town. So change didn't bother me. In fact, change actually excited me. And so as I was thinking about the next chapter, I was just excited to go after it, go do it. So while I love my college experience and uh, it was some of the best time in my life, as most people say, I was ready for the next thing. And so my first job was with Procter & Gamble. I was in sales in Orlando, Florida, and I literally graduated and packed up my car and drove to Florida. So I was super excited about it. Out of the gate. Out of the gate. Hit the ground running. No hesitation. And why Florida? 
because that's where they told that's me to where go. That's they told you to go. I <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah, my first job, they offered me a job, and uh, and I was super excited because I'd only been to Florida on vacation. Yeah. And that's when we pack up the car, and my parents would, my dad would drive all night, and we'd sleep in the back of the car, and we'd end up in Daytona or something. <laughs> so I, I just thought it would be a cool place to, to work. Did you get recruited on campus? How did you find that first job? Yeah, I did. Uh, I went to the placement office at the University of Georgia, the Career Center. I was the vice president of my fraternity. Uh, I had pretty good grades, but I wasn't high enough where somebody would put me on the exclusive list. And so uh, back in those days at the placement center, you were on, either on the exclusive list or you had to sign up. So I actually went, and I think it opened at 8 o'clock. I actually went down at 5.30 in the morning because I want to be the first one in line. Uh, when the doors opened, I went in and signed up for all the companies I wanted to sign up for. One of them was Procter & Gamble. I didn't really know a lot about them, but I knew they had a good reputation. And so I went through the interview process with them, and they offered me a job uh, with um, actually the beverage division at the time, But uh, and I went to Florida. So let's talk about your first role at Coke. So uh-huh. this is, to ground the listeners, this is 1988. The mm-hmm. movies are Die Hard, Beetlejuice, we're talking... Fax machine, whiteout, et cetera. Yes. What was actually your first role at Coke? Well, I uh, was uh, recruited from Procter & Gamble. When I started Procter & Gamble, as we mentioned earlier, I was in the beverage division. And at that time, that was uh, coffee and orange juice, Folgers Coffee, Citrus Hill Orange Juice, which doesn't exist anymore. And then I was promoted and I ended up in Charlotte. And and Procter & Gamble actually bought a soft drink company. (laughs) They bought uh, Hires Root Beer and also Crush flavored drinks. Hmm. And so I did that a while, and I got a call from a recruiter that said that, boy, Coca-Cola, they're interested in hiring some people from Procter & Gamble that had beverage experience, and would I be interested? And so I came in and interviewed growing up in the shadow of Coca-Cola, thinking they might be at the placement center we just talked about, and they weren't. I got hired as an area account executive in in Fountain, or food service and on-premise. And so I came down, and I was uh, in Atlanta briefly, and I was uh, filling in for a uh, young lady on maternity leave. And then when she came back, I read about an opening in South Florida. So I went and met with my manager and said I would go, and I ended up in South Florida. Amazing. So I was only in Atlanta for a short period of time. And you've talked about that before. You've always been willing to raise your hand for jobs that no one else did. Mm-hmm. Has it, well, Tell me more about that mindset. Yeah, well, I think it was just, it gets back to what I said earlier, is there were jobs that were newly created because of whatever situation, a new opportunity or a new business model or something like that. And I think it just went back to what I said, my upbringing of being moving around a lot is I, I was always interested in learning something new. And I really wasn't afraid of the unknown. And I thought it would be fun to do something that had never been done before. So I was always attracted to those kind of things. And then from that role, we know you've had a series of different roles. Mm -hmm. So if you can walk us through your career path a little bit. And and what would you say to people sort of at the entry level you were at as they're thinking about different career paths and doing other opportunities as well? You know, I think that the way I've tried to think about a career is a learning experience, but setting a marker out for yourself of what you're trying to achieve. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Hmm. So I think it's good to set a mark for yourself. Do you want to live in a certain location? Do you want to have a certain title? Do you want to have certain experiences? So I always try to think about that I wanted to contribute and be successful. And so along the way, I tried to think about, well, what what are areas that I believe I'm good at and what areas do I feel like I can add value and I can be successful, but along the way, trying to be honest with myself with things I didn't know. So I was always 
willing. And my advice to people is always, after you set that marker for yourself, be honest with yourself about what skills and experiences do you need to be ready for more challenges. So that would be the advice that I give them. But to answer your first part of your question, I was an area account executive, as, as you mentioned. I went on to be in what was called prestige accounts, which was at the time really uh, unique places like theme parks and stadiums, and I negotiated contracts. While I was doing that, I got my MBA at Emory University in the executive program while I was working, so I did that. Then I got into marketing. I was in the college marketing group. Then I ran a group of people who, de- who dealt with schools and colleges. Uh, I dealt with – I had a job that did a lot of um, – commercial work around uh, different channels like work channels and things like that. Then I went into franchise leadership. So I ran our largest, uh, one of our largest groups outside the company for the CCE Eastern group to learn about that. And then I actually left the company Hmm. and I left the company uh, for three years and did some entrepreneurial things with a a guy from business school that I met, Hmm. not because I didn't like where I was, where I was, but he introduced me to some things I thought would be interesting to learn. Did that and actually came back got recruited three years later to come back, which was really weird back in those days. You really didn't come back, but I always loved the company. I wanted to come back, got back into sports marketing. Then I got into food service operations. Then I got into food service marketing. Then I got into global customers. Then I got into national retail sales. And then I had the chance to run the Minute Maid company and now do what I'm doing now. So probably the theme is with all of that is trying to figure out things that I thought I could learn where I could add value because I think a lot of people could think more about how do I set myself up for success in the next role and be the best prepared. So that's how I think about that. I'm curious, Jim, in describing your journey through Coke, you really have seen a lot. Mm -hmm. You have participated in our business from so many different angles. And to me, just listening to that, it really highlights this massive footprint that is Coke North America. Right. How do you equip yourself to make decisions for such a broad organization? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's big and your decisions have a ripple effect impact that touches thousands of lives. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Uh, it's a tough question. It, it depends on the situation that's involved, but I'd, I'd say probably a couple of common themes as I think about it. One is trying to actually understand the magnitude of the decision. Oftentimes, I ask people, are you asking me to make a $100,000 decision or a $5 million decision? And sometimes that's not clear. Mm-hmm. And that's super important to me because, to be honest with you, while I'm, I try to be thoughtful about all of my decisions, I'm a lot more thoughtful. And I'll actually take more time. That, that's one of the things I've learned, actually, in the job over the last year is – I'm actually better if I give myself about 24 hours to think about a big decision. Like when people say sleep on it, mm-hmm. I actually have more clarity after I sleep on it. So I've actually learned that over the last year with some of the big decisions. So the first thing would be what's the size of the decision? The second thing would be how do I gather as many facts about the pros and cons of the decision that I can in order to make sure I've got a balanced approach? And then how do I bring other people into the decision? I often will have a room full of people or a few people and say, well, give me your point of view. What do you think about it? And then the last thing is to think about the impact on the organization. Uh, I do think about that a lot uh, because, as you mentioned, we do have a lot of people in Coke North America, and I do take that responsibility very seriously. And, and with the decisions that we have to make now with the total beverage strategy, 
much different decisions than were made in 1988 when you joined the company. So if you had to kind of explain this point in time and the total beverage strategy to, say, a third grader, uh-huh. how would you explain what's going on? A third grader? That's a good question. <laughs> Probably what I would just say is is you get back to the fact that, you know, what's beautiful about this business, and, and people might hear me say this, is, you know, you might wake up and decide you're not going to drive a car, you're going to use... Um, an Uber or a Lyft or something like that. You might decide you're not going to watch television anymore. You're going to watch Netflix, you know, all kind of things. But every morning you wake up, you're thirsty. And so the question, and North Americans drink eight beverages a day. And so, and right now we get one of those beverages. And so the real question about beverages for life is, how do you make sure you understand where consumers are going, what they want, and give them the beverage solutions they want that meet their needs? And that's how I describe beverages for life. I'm curious about kind of your journey about how you've managed yourself while managing the business. Mm-hmm. We had an awesome conversation with Dagmar, mm-hmm. and she was very candid about the fact that there are some points where the pressure of balancing life and work can just come to bear in a really you know, difficult way. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, have you had those inflection points? What were some times where you had to step back and say, I've got to figure out how to balance this better? Yeah. It's, it's always a constant uh, challenge. Um, And I think the reason that it's a constant challenge is when I started my career, the work boundaries were clearer. You know, you go to work, you do your job, you call somebody, you leave them a message, you didn't get them, they got a message slip, they call you back the next day. And now with technology, you have to consciously stop working because you could work 24-7. So I think that's a big difference. But but to answer your question, I, I, would, I would answer it this way. The first thing you have to do is balance is like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You have to figure out what you need personally for you in your life that works for you. What works for you might be different than somebody else. And then I think you have to be conscious and strategic about it. So I'll give you an example. I have a daughter who's 26 now. She played basketball her whole career and played in college. And that was something that I was really interested in, and I, I, and I was her coach a lot of times. So there were times where I'd have to leave work early, and i just have to figure out, like, okay, well— and I, I clearly my managers knew that and all that, but that was important to me. But then I had to figure out when I'm going to do the things that I'm missing. So I had to plan around that. So there were times maybe on a night or a weekend that I would have to do something of something that I trade off. But what I tell people is you can't have it all, but you can have what's important to you. Mm. And the real question is, how do you take the time to figure out what's important to you? And what are the top three things? And you pretty much have that. And maybe number four and five you need to just think differently about. But that's how I'd answer that question. Is there ever a time when you can just completely unplug? You know, I know you may try. Do you, do you ever feel like you can do that? Uh, yeah, uh, I can. Uh, it has to be strategic. And what I mean is I have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And some of that, you know, it, it, it's it's totally into my control. I try to do that on the weekend. During the week, there's a lot of things that I'm asked to do. But, I mean, you know, the reality is I love what I do. I really do. So I enjoy these things. I enjoy dinners with bottlers and customers and partners and breakfasts and travel and things like that. The other thing that I do for myself is I, I get up early and I work out. 
And so I don't do it every day, but I do it enough days. And when I do that for myself, I feel like I've invested in myself and I'm ready to invest in others. But I need a little bit of of deposit back in myself and then I'm ready to go. I'm going to paraphrase you. You've said we have 8,000 people who work in North America. And if 10% of them came up with a great idea, we couldn't even execute it. Only 10%. That's why I'm really excited about some of the changes we're making here to unleash the passion of Coca-Cola people to have a great time working here while generating great results. Can you Did I say that? That sounds pretty good. Ezra, <laughs> you knocked it out of the park wow, on that thank one, Jim. You. The paraphrasing probably sounds better than it really was, but thank you. I'm curious. Walk me through where you were when you had this aha moment. Uh, I would say it's probably a, a combination of things. So first I would say that change never bothered me. So it was part of my nature to look for an opportunity to find something that was a big opportunity for the business and go for it. And I was encouraged that. I had some really strong mentors that encouraged me to do that. But I also saw being in a big company with a strong culture that sometimes you, you're kind of conformed to the norm and it sometimes constrains people. What's interesting about the Coca-Cola business, while it's such a strong brand business, the personal difference that people can make in the outcome of something is amazing. You have a customer situation and you have person A and things are struggling and person B comes in and they just thrive. Well, person B has the same tools physically or, you know, from the brands and system that person A did, but that personal difference really made it thrive. And sometimes what I've seen is, is that the, the, the culture of an organization constrains people because they create things that create artificial barriers. And so what I'm trying to have people really take a look at and say, are these things really in your way? And if they aren't, ignore them. If they're really in your way, identify them and knock them down. So it's a combination of my own experiences and my probably my own personality but at the same time, coming up through the organization and and, and, f- and seeing people that felt like they were constrained when they really weren't. How has the company changed? You've been quoted to say, this is not your grandfather's Coca-Cola. Right. And personally, I chuckle. My, my grandfather was a bottler. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, explain to me yeah. what has changed. Yeah. And, and, and what I would say is, and when I say that, I mean that with all due respect, which is, you know, if you think about even your grandfather, you know, 130 years ago, the risk that people took to enter into this business and put their livelihood on the line to go after something that was brand new was a huge risk. And I was actually visiting with one of our bottlers the other day that's going to celebrate the 100th year of this business in their family. And I just have so much respect for that because that's just, there's not many businesses like that. But what I mean about not your grandfather's Coca-Cola is what I mean is that back in those days, we kind of had one product that was just delivered one way and consumers were different and the, and the world was different. And as the world's changing and as consumer preferences are changing and there's so much variety that people can have, we've got to act faster. We've got to be more nimble. We've got to try new things. We've got to be willing to fail because the marketplace does that. And what I, the other thing that I mean is, you know, one of the things you've heard me say, Catherine, is is the the change has never been this fast and will never be this slow again. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to continue to adapt. And, and, and what I'm excited about is, you know, we have 800 products that we sell. 
And that's another point about the story about your grandfather's Coca-Cola because, you know, they would the, the, the folks 100 years ago would be amazed and I think really proud of what they see today. Absolutely. I, I love that reference. As I mentioned, I come from the archives, so mm-hmm. I sort of looked at what made us successful for the last 130 years, and now I'm on the sustainability side thinking about the next 130 years. Right. If you were to imagine Coke 130 years from now, right, what would you want people to say as they look in history? Like, this was Jim Dinkins' leadership time, mm-hmm. sort of what you did effectively, what mm-hmm. do you want to do? And then can you even imagine the future of Coke? I know we're thinking 10 years down the line, et cetera, but just yeah. what, what do you see the future? Well, you ask a lot of good questions there. <laughs> um, so let me let me take them, take them this way. Uh, the, the first thing I would say is um, about the legacy. I mean, to be really honest with you, I get uncomfortable when people talk about stuff about me. Mm-hmm. And the reason I get uncomfortable about it is what I tell people is my job is different, but it's not more important than anybody else's. However, I am also not naive enough to know that, you know, I am in a position that does have the ability to have a big impact. Having said that, you know, what I would want people to look back and say is that the group of people that were running the business during this time had a vision of looking far enough ahead where they anticipated the changes and put us in the best position to win such that we're ready to take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And they did it in a way that was successful business-wise, but they did it in a way that people really wanted to work there and have a great time and were proud of doing it. That's what I'd say. In terms of what it looks like, I, I think over time that the notion of a person's body and what they need for hydration is going to have a big impact on our business over time. Interesting. And because the science is going to be so precise hmm. that I think people are going to be even more conscious about what they're consuming and the way they consume it by what it does for them. Interesting. And today a lot of our a lot of our brands play in the space of refreshment and uplift and enjoyment. And I think there's always going to be a role for that, but I think it's even going to be more pronounced about the functional benefits that beverages have for you in the future. Let's shift gears into growth behaviors. Okay. Where do you think you have the greatest opportunity to improve and grow when it comes to our growth behaviors? All of them, to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, If I have to pick one, I'd probably say, you know, being iterative you know, a lot of the decisions I make have big impacts. And so trying to figure out how to have a big impact quickly and understanding the upside and the downside of it sometimes can, might make me a little too hesitant about some things. But I am learning about that. You know, uh, probably a good example of that is, you know, we, we invested in a company this year. We had the opportunity to fully engage with that company around the middle of July, and by the middle of August, we had an agreement. And so in the past, that probably would have been a very hard thing to do. So with the support of management and um, other things, uh, I, w- I was willing to lean in a little harder knowing that I had a short window and knowing it was an opportunity, but that is probably the hardest one for me right now. I imagine some of our listeners are in this process of choosing their team, you know, building your team out, from a leadership perspective, is probably one of the most important decisions you can make Mm -hmm. as a leader. How do you go about hiring? And how do you think about building a team that complements both yourself and the the goals of the organization? Yeah, good question. 
Um, you're right. It's super important. Uh, it's probably as you continue to evolve and you build teams, it's probably the most important thing you can do. A couple of things I think about are skill versus experience. I, I think that people with skills uh, can learn anything. And so I tend to lean that way versus somebody who's done job one, two, three, four, five, and this is job six. That's the first thing. The second thing that is really important, and I think it's hard for people to do, is to make sure you put a team together that complement each other and that everybody's not the same. And as I said before, I used to coach basketball, and the way I think about it is you've got, you got to have rebounders, right? You can't have people who shoot the ball. you got to have somebody who pass the ball. And what happens is that creates a great team. And so trying to find people that are complementary to each other is also really important because it does make people better overall. Now, you have to create an environment where they're willing to speak up and they're willing to be a team because if they're not, then you you won't have maximized that. But that that's how I try to approach that. Very cool. I love that you talk so much about people. This this business I found in my 13 years is really a people business. Yeah. So I'm curious. You said you love being with the customers, the bottlers, et cetera. Yeah. Why do you think you like that so much? Is it sort of you feel like you're having an impact or the people connection? Just what do you yeah. love so much about your job? Well, um, well, I love a lot about my job, but but the people part, I would say, is that that Jamal, that's what's so fascinating about Coca-Cola is it's the greatest, one of the greatest brands that's ever been invented. But there's so much of the people side behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it really, really interesting. And and the reason I love it is, and this sounds kind of cliche, but what's interesting is that the people that, that get into the Coca-Cola business and decide to really get in it and stay, they're super passionate. And I think the reason they're passionate is because the nature of it is something that it can be anywhere. It's affordable. It's simple. It's refreshing. It's uplifting. It's fun. And it's also a very, very competitive environment. So while you're doing all that, the, the, the scoreboard can be really clear to you. And so I think it attracts people to the business that have a commonality around winning and wanting to have fun and want to succeed. And I just get, in, get a lot of energy around people like that. Um, if we had to wrap up this, this interview, mm-hmm. how do we sum up? you know, kind of what's on your mind for this year and what you want us to take away as a, as a lesson we can all learn from the vantage point of your leadership of this business? Great question. Uh, we are very fortunate to be in a great business. The non-alcoholic beverage business is one of the biggest, $200 billion. It's one of the largest growing businesses you could be in. So it's a great business. We are well-positioned in that business. We've got great brands. We've got unique routes to market. And as we talked about, we only get one of eight beverages. So while we have been successful by a lot of measures, the opportunity is endless. And when you combine that with the fact that as an individual at Coca-Cola, you literally can do anything. You are not constrained. You can come in and be a finance person and you can be in sales. You can be a salesperson and you can be in HR. You, you can do anything you want. And the only thing that's limiting is your own desire and aspiration and effort against going after it. And to me, all of those opportunities put together just lead me to the fact that it's just an exciting place to be because it's the, the future's in front of us. And even though we're a 132-year-old company, 
we've got the chance to create another 132 years in a way that means a lot to people. If you were to tune in to the other episodes of the podcast with the rest of your leadership team, what would you like to hear about or what would you look forward to hearing about from them? I just love to hear them unscripted. You know, a lot of times when we're together, it's uh, a formal environment. There's something specific we're working on. We're intently trying to accomplish an objective. I'd love to hear them in more of a relaxed format and just hear what's on their mind. And then I'm curious to hear if we flip the tables and we're into season two of our podcast, what would be a question you would want us to ask some other employees? What's a top of mind question for you? I would I would like to ask them, what are they for? And what I mean is um, a lot of times when you're in situations, you kind of see the challenge and sometimes you don't see the opportunity. And so I'd love to know if that, you know, if they were in my chair and they could make two or three decisions that would really, they think could really, expand our business, grow our business, and, and and continue to help make our place a better place to work, what would be the two or three things that they would be for to make that happen? Well, thanks for joining us today, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Okay, Jamal, that's a wrap on season one of Total Refresh. It has been an amazing ride, and today's pretty bittersweet. Yeah, I still can't believe it. But I just want to thank everybody for listening, subscribing, telling your friends about it, and being on this journey with us. But thankfully, we will be back again soon with another radically refreshing season. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and telling your friends about the show. We'll talk soon. Stay refreshed by subscribing to Total Refresh on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere podcasts are found. Total Refresh is a production of the Coca-Cola Company in partnership with Frequency Media. We're your hosts, Jamal Booker and Catherine Cherry. The show is executive produced by Michelle Corey and Rose Reed and produced by me. Cooper Skinner is our sound engineer and editor. Our music is composed by Thomas Avery at Tune Welders. And our artwork is by Tova Rosenberg. A special thanks to all the Coca-Cola employees who made this podcast possible. 